I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And as you are doing that, I want to ask you a question. And I guess it's not really rhetorical, but so feel free to kind of speak out if you feel so brave. Um, if I, I'm going to ask this question. What do you think is the number one killer of people today? And no, it is not your spouse. You can't say that. I know. What is the number one killer of people today? What would you say? Loneliness? That's actually a really good one. Satan? Yes, he is the father of lies and the father of many things that are ultimately leading to death. What else? I'm talking about physically, not spiritually here. What do you think? (laughs) Say again. Heart disease? Okay, ding, 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 we have a winner. Heart disease, now I know you're like, why in the world are we even going here? Heart disease is the number one killer of people, even today. You know, I know cancer seems to be the, the, the four-letter word that comes to mind, the kind of the, the scare diagnosis that people have, but actually heart disease continues to be the number one killer of people today. Three quarters of a million people every single day die of some related heart disease, and that is with the addition or the advancement of pharmaceutical and medical technologies. Again, it's incredible. Incredible, and some of you are the recipients of this incredible advancement. Some of you are going like, I just got a few stints put in not too long ago, and it was same-day surgery. At one time, that was not even an option or even a consideration in the doctor's minds, but now you can go in, get your stints put in, and guess what? Your life has increased. Your longevity has increased dramatically, and your quality of life has increased dramatically by those advancements. But even with the advancement of many medical technologies, heart disease continues to kill people at the number one spot. But I have a reason for saying that. Because there's also a number one killer in the church. What do you think the number one killer of the church is? Heart disease. Okay. Could you? It is a a heart. Yes, that's true. I'm not going to say that's, we could probably keep going on that. Yeah. But what is the number one killer within the church today? Oh man, that is a good one. It's not the one I'm looking for, but that is a very good one. Complacency. What else? Not having a heart for God. That's right. The kingdom of self. Is that what you said, Nate? Yeah. Not passing it on. Yeah. All good answers. Not the answer I was looking for, but all good answers. (laughs) The number one killer in the church today is lovelessness. It's lovelessness. It's a lack of love. You know, marriages that dissolve at a rapid rate, not because circumstances don't always go the way they intend, but because a lack of love that exists within the context and the union of that covenant. Kids grow up in a a dysfunctional and have almost lifelong issues in life because of a potential lack of love in a home environment. And the number one killer within the church today, I believe, as Scripture makes very clear, is a lack of love within the body of Christ. I mean, listen to the words of Jesus given through the apostle John here in Revelations chapter 2. Jesus tells this to John, write this letter to the angel to the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know all the things that you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. 
You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Wow, so, so far so good, right? Quite the, quite the expression of gratitude by God himself. Well, Jesus continues. He says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Now, what is Jesus warning the church of Ephesus about? What, 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 his, what was his both encouragement, but more specifically his exhortation or warning to the church of Ephesus? I believe Alexander Strout, who writes, uh, who summarizes his, I think, the words of Jesus really well in his book called Love or Die, he says this, an individual or a church can teach sound doctrine They can be faithful to the gospel. They can be morally upright. They can work really hard for the kingdom of God and yet be lacking in love and therefore displeasing to Christ. You see, according to Jesus, love, and specifically love for God and love for one another, is not merely a a, a strong suggestion that promises benefits in return. No, love is the foundation to the health of the church. It is the determining test of the genuineness of our faith. In fact, it is, as Scripture tells us over and again, the one commandment that, in which all other commands are fulfilled or obeyed. Even listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 12, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. In our text this morning, John also or equally sounds the alarm of love's importance in the life of the church. And it's not really the first time that John's actually mentioned. This is actually the fourth time that John has addressed the importance of love. Every single chapter in his letter comes back to this predominant theme of love that must exist within the church of Christ and specifically our love for one another. And so we see in chapter four in our text that John, in a sense, slows way down. He puts the brakes on. He says, you know what? I've made mention of it many times very, very clear exhortations, but I'm going to slow way down and, and devote much of this chapter to the importance of this foundational virtue and characteristic that must be true within the life of the church. As a way of reminder, I think it's important that we also understand that when John and even Jesus speaks to love, it's important to understand the kind of love that he is talking about because, again, as we've talked about before, we can hear the word love and all kinds of ideas come to our mind. And the world even is all about love, which is great, but that does not mean we are talking about the same kind of love. Everybody, in a sense, might have a, a subjective understanding of what love is. So the question is, what is the kind of love that John and, their, and even Jesus are talking about And as we've learned already, the kind of love he's speaking to is called agape love. What is agape love? Let me tell you. It is a love that is unconditional. It is a love that is sacrificial. Agape is more concerned about the well-being of others before the well-being of oneself. It is a love that is born out of choice or, rather than emotions or, or feelings. 
It is a commitment and a sacrifice for another person without any expectation of return. That's the kind of love that John speaks to here. And so as we hear the word love, which is spoken over 30 times in this chapter, remember, this is, the, this is what he's saying. It's agape love, not just any kind of love. It is an unconditional, sacrificial love that has no expectation of return, but freely given. So with that, let's read our text. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Again, John oftentimes comes back to this word, beloved. It's a derivative of agape. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. And God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in, the, in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whatever fear has, fear has, has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that as we unpack your divine word, your eternal word. I pray that you would give us receptive ears. I pray that we wouldn't grow dull or even make the assumption that we really grasp this as we ought. But Father, I just pray that we have ears attuned to what your spirit is telling us through your word. And we just ask that you would give us receptive hearts, hearts that are not just able to understand, a mind that's not able just to comprehend, but a willingness that you would change our will, that you would change our disposition so that we might act upon what you call us to. We know that we cannot do that apart from, our, apart from your spirit's empowerment in our life. We have a choice, yes, but we are weak And we are frail creatures, but we are empowered by your Spirit. And so give us a willingness and a desire and the know-how to follow through. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to highlight three reasons as to why John tells us we ought to love one another. And then we're going to highlight two benefits that follow when we do love one another and the way in which we are called. Now, just so you know kind of the pace in which I'm going to go, I think it's going to go like this at least. The first two reasons as to why we are called to love one another are going to be, much, I'm going to kind of, be, kind of take my time on them. And then I'm going to pick up the pace and then we are going to kind of go through reason number three as well as the two benefits pretty quickly, okay? So if you're wondering, like, oh, he's only on point number two, and you have three more points to go, now you can be kind of, you can rest assured that I'm going to be picking up that pace, and we will get out of here 
sooner than we have the last two services. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> the first reason we are to love one another is because, is that coming up? You can bring it up there, Mary, thanks. The first reason we are to love one another is because God is love. God is love. Listen to what John says in verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, what does that mean, that God is love? I mean, it's, it's something that we maybe have trained or, or taught our children at a young age. God is love. But what does that really mean? What is, what's the significance that God is love? Well, there's two things I want to highlight for us this morning. The first is this, that God is love, first of all, doesn't mean that God has the most capable, he's not the most capable being in the university, universe to love. In other words, God doesn't have the greatest capacity to love. That's not what God is love means, though that is true. No, God is love means that God, that, that it, it's kind of intrinsic to his very nature. It's who he is. Much like what wet is to water, love is to God. Just as light radiates from the sun, so love radiates from God. God is love. He doesn't just does love. He's not just able to love. He is the very definition of love. Commentator and pastor C.H. Dodd said it this way. He says, God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity, even his judgment. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that God does is to the expression of his nature, which is to love. So God is love means that it's intrinsic to his very nature. It's inseparable. But there's another implication of what God is love means, and that is this, that God's love is therefore unlimited. Because God is eternal, therefore his love is eternal. Because God is not limited, therefore because it's true to his nature, his love for us is also equally unlimited. It's always helpful to contrast sometimes what that means. Whereas you and I may come to the end of our patience with one another, or where we might reach our known capacity to love one another, God has no limits. His love for us cannot be exhausted. It pours out of him eternally because why? God is love. Now, what does that mean for you and for me? What does that mean for our lives as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, one significant implication is this. It means that God cannot stop loving you. Let me just say that again. God cannot stop loving you. Once you are adopted, once you are considered a child of the king, he cannot stop loving you. Actually, Alexis Phobian shared this last week when she testified to God's goodness. Not putting you on the spot, Alexis, but sort of, I guess. David says in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where should I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Paul also, in Romans chapter 8, boldly declares this, this truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, meaning even you can't separate you from God. That's really good news, by the way. Even you can't separate you from God. 
Nothing. How much is nothing? Zilch, zero, nada, negatory. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even you. Dane Ortland, in his book called Deeper, I think captures this reality when he states, you who are in Christ cannot step outside of the cascading waterfall of divine love. Listen to this part. God would have to un-God himself for his love for you to run dry. God would have to un-God himself for his love for you to run dry. Brothers and sisters, this is really good news for you and for me because there are so many things in this world and we have an enemy and a formidable enemy who is also, as we talked about, the father of lies and he plants all sorts of lies in our minds like, does God really love you? Maybe he doesn't. I mean, look at my track record. Look at my lackluster performance. Look at my, look at my inability to do the right thing even though I know the right thing to do. God would have to un-God himself to stop loving you as his child. And so because of that foundation, because of that eternal foundation that is presented to us by the the apostle writer John, he goes on to say in verse 7, therefore anyone who is born again or born of God will express the character of God. Specifically, will manifest the love of God. Why? Because now you, as a child of God, have his nature. Remember, this covenant that we live in is remarkable in a sense because this new covenant is that no longer is there kind of a place in which the priest must represent the people to God and vice versa. But now he tabernacles with us. We are that temple. Our lives are that temple. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And because Christ is in us, we have the nature of God. We are a new creation, Paul says, and therefore we live and we act and we speak and are motivated by God's spirit that is at work within us because his nature is in us. You've heard the phrase, no doubt, If it looks like a dog, smells like a dog, plays like a dog, acts like a dog, barks like a dog, guess what? It's probably a dog. I think the same is true for Christians. Those who are truly born of God will display the divine virtues of God because you have his nature. Now, as John oftentimes does, here's the expectation, here's the standard, here's the, 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 the motivation behind it all, but at the same time, there's a contrasting, uh, opposing perspective to make sure we really understand this. And in verse 8, he gives us kind of the opposite of what is also true. And Paul, John says this, those who do not love one another reveal that they don't really know God. In other words, the surest sign or the, the surest evidence of a person who, who does not really know God, who, who, who has not experienced the divine transformation that comes when the Spirit takes residence in a person's life, is the person who is unwilling to show love for a brother or sister in Christ. Listen to what John says a chapter earlier in 1 John chapter 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Even as John states in our chapter, chapter 4, verse 20, he says, you cannot say that you love God and at the same time hate your brother. And so we are called as children of God, as those saved by the grace of God, to love one another. And the reason we are called to love one another is because God is love. It is his very nature. And because we have been born of God and have received his nature, then in turn the expectation is we must love like him. We must love him as he has loved us.
And that brings us to our second point. We love one another because God has loved us. We love one another because God has loved us. Now, just to, just to make sure that we're really tracking here, the ability to live out Jesus' command to love one another is made possible in part because we now have God's nature in us. But in order for us to understand more fully what this love is and to have our minds kind of grasp the magnitude of God's love, John points us to the cross of Jesus. Look at verses 9 through 11. In this, what is this? That God is love, that it's in his very nature, that we are called to love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, verse 19, he, we love because he first loved us. Paul resonates in the same way in Romans 5.8. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the question we ought to be kind of posing or that is somewhat begged here is, what was the, our disposition toward God when he pursued us in love? What was our perspective, what was our place in relationship to God when he pursued us and saved us in love by grace? Well, the Bible makes it clear that we were enemies of God. Look at Romans chapter 3. We were hostile to God. We were spiritually blind, spiritually dead, relationally orphaned, and yet in our hostile and hopeless state, God pursued us and saved us by his mercy and grace and forgiveness. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, right? That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.8. Or consider a very, very, very famous verse, right? Probably the first verse that you ever learned. You know what I'm talking about? What? Yeah, yep, that's what I'm thinking of. John 3.16. You know this verse really well. Maybe not as well as you might think perhaps, but we know we can, we can spit it off our tongue really quickly, right? For God so loved the world, we could probably say it together, but we might have different translations and it get really confusing, so I'll just say it for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Wow. You know, as I've kind of mentioned before, it's helpful to kind of understand when you, when you really saturate and sit in the Scripture, certain phrases start kind of jumping out going, huh, like for example, for God so loved the world. There's an emphasis that John includes there. And when you actually look at the original Greek What it means is that God so intensely loved his creation, especially the human race, that he gave his most precious possession that he had, which was his son. And he gave him to die for our sin and the sins of the whole world so that we might be reconciled into eternal fellowship with our heavenly father. God so loved the world, so intensely loved that he gave the most precious possession he had, his son, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, unbelievers or non-followers of Jesus Christ oftentimes object to this. Even some believers object to this, and they call this cosmic child abuse. After all, how dare a father send his son to take on the guilt of someone else's wrongdoing, right? Right? I mean, what kind of cruel father would throw his son in the way for other people when they were the ones that were guilty and his son was the one that was innocent? That makes no sense. How can God be love? How is God is love and then do something like this? And brothers and sisters, that's the glorious message of the gospel, that God loves you so much that he's willing to do whatever it takes to save you. 
He's willing to do whatever means necessary in order to save you and to reconcile you back into right relationship with himself. It's not child abuse. It's the most incredible, life-transforming, divine display of love given to the human race. Yes, the cross of Jesus is horrific to the extent that God had to go in order to save us from our sin. But it is also the most magnificent display of unconditional, undeserving, sacrificial agape freely given to us. In this is love. If you want to know the godly definition of love, the cross of Jesus is the most clearest understanding of God's love for you. You know, if you were to ask the question to yourself, and perhaps you already have, maybe you asked it this morning, I don't know. But I know we all ask it at times in our life. Does God really love me? Or maybe after a nice string of poor performance, does God still love me? And the only appropriate answer to that very important question is look to the cross. Look to the cross of Jesus. That is how much he loves you. That is the extent that God is willing to go in order to save you and that you might remain in his love. As we even sang together, he is the one who holds us fast. Left to ourselves, we are weak and we are frail and vulnerable as all get out. But thanks be to God through his son and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he keeps us. He remains, he keeps us fast. He holds us fast. Even in spite of our lackluster performance, we look to the cross and it reassures our hearts, oh God, you do love me. I'm always amazed, and I continue to be amazed, and I pray that we, all, we never grow tired of this fact, that God saw our miserable, lost, dead, orphan, enslaved state, and instead of looking the other way or throwing up his hands in frustration going, man, you screwed it up again, what did he do? He loved you. He just said, I love you. And I'm here to save you. I know. I know. Trust me, I know. And I love you. How did he love you? He initiated a divine rescue mission to save you. A divine rescue mission in which the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But even Jesus even verbally says, I laid down my life on my own terms. It was a a decision within the triunity of God. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to bring glory to our name. This is what we're going to do. We're going to save this lost, pitiful state. I love these people. Sin has wreaked havoc and corrupted everything, but watch what I do to restore and to redeem and to renew and to make all things new, and I get the glory as a result. That's how much God loves you. Since it is God's nature to love, and since it is his nature to love us with, a degree, with, with such a degree of intensity, and because we now have that nature indwelling us by his spirit, John tells us that we are to love one another with this same love and with this same intensity. We love, verse 19 says, because he first loved us. We could expand that and just unpack with that, the significance of that just for a second. What does that mean? It says, it means that we for, therefore forgive one another because we were first forgave, forgiven. We are to be patient with one another because God has been eternally patient with us. We extend grace toward each other because we are the recipients of his constant grace. 
We don't give up on one another because Jesus doesn't give up on us. The, the list goes on and on and on. What does it mean that we love because he first loves? As we saturate and soak in the significance as well as the magnitude of God's great love for you, in turn, we are able to give and love one another. You cannot give what you don't receive, haven't yet received. You can only give what you've already received. So as we are filled with the love of Christ, we are therefore able to give and love one another as we are called. Dean Orland says it well. He says, we must never graduate beyond the gospel. We must never graduate beyond the gospel. We must move ever deeper into the gospel because the gospel is not just for our salvation. It is also for our sanctification. We depend on the gospel. The gospel starts it, and from the day into completion, when we are face-to-face with Jesus Christ and we no longer live by faith, but now we live, we, but then we, soon we'll live by sight, it's at that moment, in that time, that period of time, however long that is, we depend upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It, yes, it started our salvation, and we are continually being saved until one day we are in glory with Jesus Christ. There's a book actually back by the Connect Desk, and this might be a good reason to plug it back there. There's a handful of resources or books behind the Connect Desk, and you might be wondering, why are those books there? Um, those books are there because they are kind of more of a pastoral uh, resource recommendation, and um, we as pastors just want to kind of put good books in your hands. And these are some books that have been impacting for us, not exhaustive, but they've been good books that have impacted us. And so we put those out there as a way of going, what is that book? And we wouldn't put a book up there that was like, ah, it's all right. No, we put a book up there going like, whoa, you really got to read this. You would do very well. It would encourage your walk of faith by reading this book. One such resource back there that we give out uh, as, at the end of our membership class is a book that really deals. It's called The Gospel Primer. There you go. <laughs> primer, primer, whatever you want to call it. The gospel primer. I won't, you'll, you can read the biography in there, but a pastor wrote that after 20 years of preaching the gospel, but realizing that he felt still powerless in his life and walk uh, and pursuit of Christ. He's like, I'm preaching it all, but my own life doesn't reflect what I'm preaching. And he, he just kind of stumbled upon it until he finally came full circle and realizing, I need the gospel of Jesus now. I need the gospel of Jesus every single day. And this book is a compilation of a gazillion sticky notes that he had all over his house so that he would always be reminded, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is what God has done for me. This is how much God loves me. This is the freedom that God offers to me. And he's like, as I began to saturate my mind and my heart with that, I became free. No longer was it a message to be preached, but it was a life to be lived. And so that is a book we give out at the end of membership, which Pastor Tom will talk about at the end of the service. But um, you can look at it too at the Connect Desk. Let me ask you another quick question. How do we know if we are loving one another in an agape manner? How do we know if we are loving one another as God has loved us? I read a book, actually I listened to it twice, um, at my brother-in-law's recommendation called Love Revolution. And uh, Gaylord Enns actually wrote this book and uh, talking about the commandment that Jesus gives us in this new co- covenant and one part of it, he just he, he kind of asked this question, how, how do we know if we are loving as we are called, or how do we know if we are not loving as we are not called to do? And he actually says it in this way. He says, the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we concerned or are we indifferent for those whom God has put in our life? Are we concerned or are we indifferent with those whom God has put in our life? You see, the contrast of love and hate can be observed by our concern and indifference for another person. 
Love begins with concern, and its ultimate expression is to give your life for that person. Indifference or hate begins with indifference, and its ultimate expression is murdering that person. It all begins with concern or indifference. And so the question is, are you concerned or indifferent toward everyone in your life? Or maybe we could dig just a little deeper into those inner rooms of our heart. Are you concerned or indifferent toward those whom you struggle to like? Are you concerned or indifferent with those who you find difficult to get along with? Are you concerned or indifferent with those who have caused you pain? Love begins with concern. Hate begins with indifference. But the commandment of Scripture is love one another just as God has loved us. Well, I pick up the pace very quickly here. And the third reason we are to love one another is because our Christian witness is dependent on it. John says this really succinct statement. He says, no one has ever seen God in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Of course, it somewhat begs the question, how can the love of God and the presence of God be experienced if no one has ever seen God? And the answer very quickly is, by the way in which we love one another, by the love that we extend to one another. It sort of kind of begs the question, what, what does the world, or more, maybe more specifically, what does our neighbor, our coworker, our church family, our friend, our relative conclude about God's unconditional and sacrificial love by observing my life? It's as Jesus says in John chapter 13, He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, love for one another is the distinguishing mark of a true disciple of Jesus. You might recall that at the kind of the beginning of our series here, we talked about the mark of true discipleship or the mark of a, a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And I gave the example of, well, my identical boys, Matthew and Jonathan. And Jonathan has a birthmark on him. And that's really the only way, unless you've really spent a lot of time with him, the only way to distinguish Jonathan from Matthew. It's on his, you just look at his arm. But for the Christian, we just look at one's love that they extend to one another. The way a believer or a follower of Jesus Christ is distinct from all other people is, is by one identifying virtue, and that virtue is love for one another. And I believe it's probably the number one reason why many people are turned off or don't buy into this idea of, of, of faith or following Jesus is because sometimes our love for one another is at best very, very uh, not that different from the world's. You see, what wins people to Jesus Christ is not necessarily how much we know or how much we can win an argument by who we are, though. People are drawn to Jesus because we have they have experienced his love through you. I always remember where Abby and I used to live before we had a larger family. Um, there was a neighbor a couple houses down from us, and uh, She's not walking to the Lord. I don't even know where she's at with today, but we're, while we were there, we were, we were just going, hey, this is where God has placed us. This is where he's established us. We want to be the, the best possible witness on the block he's putting in front of us. Two houses down. It was, um, if you looked at the word di- dysfunction in the dictionary, that house might come up, perhaps. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just like there was just a lot of pain, brokenness, hardship. It was bad. And so we're like, well, and all the neighbors hated the fact that they lived on our street. 
They hate, like, oh, I just, if this neighborhood would be so much, this block would be so much better if that house was gone, if those people were gone. And I was like, you know, there's another alternative. You could go across the street and love them. And that's what we did. And she even asked questions like, why are you doing this? Why would you, why, I know the reputation I have. I know nobody likes me. And it's like, because God loves you, and therefore we love you. Then the neighborhood didn't really like us very much because, <laughs> because we were all of a sudden catering to the people that were the problem. You know what? That's going to happen. John actually talks about it. The reason why the world does not know us, because it did not know him. So we come to some benefits real quickly here. The first benefit is this. Our love for one another is evidence that we believe rightly about Jesus and have his, his spirit indwelling us. Let me just get right to the point. John basically tells us this. The way in which we know that we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, that his spirit is within us, is by the way in which we love one another. If we do not have love for one another, then we ought to ask the question, does the spirit of God actually indwell me in the first place? Because if he does, it cannot help but love one another because that is the nature of God to love. Make sense? Right? And it also confirms that we are believing rightly about Jesus Because when we believe rightly about Jesus, we therefore in turn do what he says. If you love me, he says, you will obey my commands. And what was his commandment to us? Love one another. A second benefit that quickly comes is is this. Our love for one another enables us to stand confidently in the day of judgment. You know, throughout Scripture, We are promised that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our lives here on earth. And knowing this inevitable reality ought to kind of sober us in a very very beneficial way, going like, I'm going to stand before Jesus one day, and how confident am I when I stand before Jesus? Not if, but when I stand before Jesus. Well, John addresses that. And he says, but when love has been perfected in you, then there's no longer a fear of love, meaning that when God's love has reached its intended goal and accomplished its perfect work in our lives, fear before God has vanished. We're no longer cowering away in shame. We're not wondering what God thinks about us. We already know God loves me, which means I'm accepted by God. When I stand before God, I'm as accepted as Jesus Christ is accepted. I'm as loved as Jesus Christ is loved. Why? Because Jesus Christ is in me and I'm in him. By the way, that's a good place for an amen. I know we're not African American in here or anything, but you know what? That is glorious. We can stand before God, as as Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace to find help and to find mercy in time of need. When we are in fear, we do not run to the throne of grace. We run from it. Just the other day, my son Joshua, I said, Joshua! And there was like this, you know how a thousand thoughts run through your mind in one split second? He just stopped and he stood there. And I said, Josh, you did so good raking the leaves because the leaves fell off forever, right? You know, they just fell off during that last snow. And so we finally raked up the, the yard in January, <laughs> you know, it's a little late, but we raked it all up. It makes it all nice, and he's trying to earn some money, and so we're, we made a big, a big uh, kind of challenge and project for him. And I said, Josh, you did so good. And he's like, whoa, I thought you were mad at me at first because I just kind of called out his name because I said, Joshua, pause, and he's like, uh. And it was interesting, in that moment, Joshua, he's like, he, I said, Josh, and he's like, he stood, and he started kind of going back, and his eyes were attention. He's like, I don't know how to interpret this circumstance right now. And then when I praised him, he's like, oh, for a second there, man, I thought you were angry at me. And then his, his whole demeanor changed, and he came up and slugged me in the stomach as a way of showing love. That's what he does, you know? Gideon Orvis does the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's a sign of endearment. I understand. <laughs> but church family, it's no different than our relationship with our Father. You see, your theology is kind of put on display when, when, when you're honest with yourself and going, do I feel 
uninhibited access to God? Or do I, do I cower in shame? Is there something in my life that is kind of deterring me from my relationship with my Father? That's why that glorious verse in verse 9 of chapter 1 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's not a question of coming back into fellowship with God as if you lost your salvation. That's, a, that's the realization because sin blinds us and doesn't allow us to see what's already in front of us. Sin blinds us and we don't see that God's going, I love you. And sin messes up our vision and distorts our, our, our vantage point and our perspective. And we confess and we go, oh, God actually never stopped loving me the whole time. Here I was so fearful and afraid the whole time. And God's like, I never stopped loving you. That's why I'm just eager to forgive. I'm eager to make right. I'm eager to make whole and to cleanse because I love you. I can't stop loving you. I say this in closing here. Verse 21, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. I kind of shared this before, but I think it's a good way to kind of conclude our time here this morning. Jerome, the fourth century historian and kind of church father, kind of shared this. It's been kind of since then inserted in some commentaries. But Jerome did kind of harkens back to when John was a very, 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 very old sage. Apostle John, the last remaining apostle, right? They're all, everyone got martyred. John is still alive. He was exiled in Patmos, and now he's in Ephesus. He can't even walk anymore, and he gets, he gets carried out on a pallet, he has, everybody holds him in high esteem. And he comes out and he just keeps repeating one statement. Love one another. Love one another. And he did this every single time. Finally to the point where everybody's like, why don't you say anything else? Why, why, there's so many things you could say. Why do you always keep coming back to this? Love one another. And he says this, because it is enough. If we love one another, we fulfill the law of God. We show that the spirit of God truly is in us. And as I kind of mentioned at the very beginning, when we love one another as God has loved us, the church is healthy. The church is alive. The church is empowered by the Spirit to reach others with the gospel of Jesus. But when love does not exist within the walls, or excuse me, the community of the church, then the only alternative is that it dies. The health of the church the life of the church rests and falls on our love for one another. I pray that, that we as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, would be committed and devoted to one another in this way. Mm-hmm.